0: Brother Nate mentioned we'll be continuing our, our study in the book of Second Timothy. <clears throat> so we'll be starting with cha- on into chapter two and start with verse one. Through verse 13, we'll go ahead and read that passage <clears throat> Now. this course, Paul writing to Timothy he says, "You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace as in Christ Jesus." And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if one competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of his crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the beginning of this chapter, since this was a letter, originally was written from Paul to Timothy and wasn't broken up in the way that we have it, um, Paul continues from his previous thought from the end of chapter 1. Paul has been writing to Timothy and he mentions in chapter 1 of how all in Asia, including, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, is Phygelus and Hermogenes, um, they had turned away from Paul and from his teachings, and they had not held fast to sound to sound words. Paul goes on to record um, that he had asked the Lord to show mercy on the house of Onesiphorus, apparently in times of hardship and of discouragement that Paul had gone through, that he had been encouragement to Paul. He was not ashamed of what Paul had taught, and we're told that when he had come to Rome, he sought out Paul and found him, and Paul, it seems, is very much appreciative of everything that he had done. He mentions that even Timothy knows of the things that he had done for him while while Paul was in Ephesus. And then continuing from that thought, in chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it says, you, therefore, be strong in the grace as in Christ Jesus. He tells Timothy to take these teachings, teachings that Paul had been teaching everywhere that he went, and for Timothy to continue to preach these things. These thing, the things that Paul and the other you know, apostles and disciples taught were not just for specific groups of people um, in specific cities at this specific point in time. They were to be taught by others and taught over and over again throughout the land and throughout the world and on down um, through time. Paul tells Timothy that he should seek out faithful men, <clears throat> men that he could teach and they could also teach others. It was not only the duty of the apostles to teach but As we see other faithful men to learn the teachings and to carry on teaching these to others where just the apostles were not able to get to. It wasn't just charged to them, although we read of that in Mark 16 and 15, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, but others must be sent also. When writing in Romans, Paul says, how how will they hear without a preacher and how will they preach unless they are sent? And we see this idea here spoken of directly by Paul in these following verses. In verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. The idea of spiritual warfare is used several times in the New Testament. Paul seems to like this, among other analogies. He recalled putting on the armor of God. And why is that? Why is this something that he keeps going back to? And once again, why the armor of God? That's because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against we principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness. (coughs) This is warfare, but a different battlefield than we are accustomed to. Now, if one was to enlist in in the United States military, um, unless you are being drafted in time of war, um, you would enlist in whichever branch that you would choose. You would go through your boot camp, your initial training or schooling to learn whatever it is you would be doing and you would be stationed um, wherever it is you would be serving whether stateside or internationally somewhere no matter where you're stationed no matter what your particular job may be whether you are you know a, a teletypist you are a, a tank operator a sniper an accountant in the military a diver a communications specialist whatever you are and whoever you are <clears throat> you are in direct subordination to your co or your commanding officer if you do not attend to your duties or if you leave your post altogether there are consequences, up to and including court-martials and disarmament discharges and <clears throat> the removal of yourself from the military and altogether, and all the ramifications that can have on your life. Now why? why is that? There isn't any other job that's that's like this. If I was decide not to show up to, to my work tomorrow, I might get away with that for a day, you might get away with that with a day, depending on you know who we are to our company and what they're willing to tolerate. The worst case scenario, I'll be fired And while that's not ideal, I won't be taken to court, most likely. I probably won't be thrown in jail or fined. So why is the military different? Because the stakes are much, much higher. Because even down to the smallest job, that machine that is the United States military has to be as efficient as it possibly can. There are rules and regulations for a reason, and the consequences are high for a reason. Because when it comes down to it, when a country is at war, you cannot have men and women doing whatever they wish, following whosoever they may wish to follow, running away, having no idea what they're supposed to do or when they're supposed to do it. The safety of the country relies on that working efficiently. And when you enlist, they expect you to do your duties and to do them to the required standard that they have. You can't just take time off to go do whatever you want, whenever you would like to go do it. You can't decide, well, I know it's frowned upon, but I think for a while I'll sell some military secrets, maybe to Russia for some extra money, and then eventually I'll, I'll come back and I'll make things right. You can't decide, you know, I don't really feel like fighting today. Maybe I'll stay, you know, in the barracks or in the foxhole or wherever we happen to be at, and I'll take a break from fighting. No, at this point you'll be allowing the enemy to gain a foothold. They found a weakness. You all, and you also weaken those around you by acting that way, especially those who may be in, may be in subordination to you. <clears throat> we in the same way must desire to please the one whose army we have enlisted. That's the army of the Lord, and to carry out his orders. We are thrust into this war when we come to the what we refer to as the age of accountability. We're forced to choose a side. Unlike conventional warfare, we cannot take comfort knowing there are others. There's the military who will put themselves on the line, and they keep our country safe. We also can take comfort knowing that is not our calling as, as Christians, but in this war, we are forced to choose a side. And if we choose to join the army of the Lord and to wage war under Him, we must battle according to the commands that are given. If we are engaging in warfare, we must not let ourselves, as Paul mentions, be drawn away by the things of this life. We must be focused on that, on that task. We must focus on the job at hand and focus on executing the orders that are given. We must do what is asked of us as soldiers of Christ. And Paul goes on and gives another analogy to Timothy. He says many it speaks of sports here, those who engage in athletics. And many of us enjoy sports, whether watching or playing. And if you're you watch an athletic event, whatever that may be, uh, many times, especially if it's on TV, you're watching professional athletes, and they have dedicated their entire lives to whatever sport that they engage again they are operating at an immensely high level at that point they are all striving for a shot at the championship or the trophy if you're in fighting sports perhaps you know a belt or a title of some kind if you're in the olympic teams you're competing hoping that you'll podium and hopefully with a gold medal but guess what the same applies there are rules first off you have to train physically for a specific sport you can't train for a different sport and hope that you can compete in this one and be able to compete at all because it'll be impossible not at that level you have to be 100 percent dedicated to the sport your diet has to be dialed in that level everything has to revolve around the sport your sleep your social life your family your friends if any of those things are off and they stay off consistently it could be enough to keep you from reaching your potential and maybe even enough to keep you from making it to the championship match. Also, even if you are there, you have to play by the rules. Perhaps you're running. There are certain shoes and certain running events that are not allowed to be worn. You'll be, you can be disqualified. There's certain gear you can't use or certain rules you, can't, you have to abide by. You can't cheat and try to find an easier way or a different way to win. You'll be penalized or potentially disqualified for doing so. Even if you seemingly are doing everything perfect, And everyone believes you are. If the officials realize that you are secretly cheating the whole time and not acting according to the rules, they will strip you of your medal. The same is true in the life of a Christian. We cannot go around committing sin rampantly and living, you know, like the world. That is against the rules and flies in the face of the sport, if you'll pardon the analogy. If we expect to win the prize, as it were, to receive the crown of life, as we read of in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, we must play by the rules. If we do, do not, then we are disqualified, and we lose our crown, and the consequences for doing so are not only brutal, but they are eternal. Along the same line, Paul goes on to give another analogy to Timothy. He says, talks of the hardworking farmer. And it's only through the dedicated tilling and the weeding and the watering that the rainfall is not you know, to the standard you need, and fertilizing, caring for different animals, making sure that the animals you don't want to get in are not getting into your garden, only through hard work that you may be able to partake and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Without the labor, or by being idle, there's no fruit to partake in. You'll go hungry and starve. I remember many summers sitting on the porch or under a shade tree, and me and Daniel, and we'd be shucking and silking corn or or be shelling purple whole peas or snapping green beans, and uh, it's, it's, it was miserable. I hated it. Um, I enjoy it more now, that I can understand a little bit better or hoe it in the garden or be 150 degrees in the house because mom's been canning it for three days straight. Um, it's a lot of work, but that is so you can have the produce, you can eat on it throughout the rest of the year. And if you are, you're idle, you do not labor, there is nothing to partake in. You will starve, you'll lose the race. You'll be defeated in the battle, unless you are following the rules laid before you, and we are focusing and working for that goal. Paul tells Timothy to consider these things. He says, Timothy, I want you to think about these things I've told you. He wants him to to ponder on them, to understand what he's telling them, especially in light of what Paul mentioned in chapter 1, the things that he had gone through. Not only that, but he asked the Lord, Paul says, to give Timothy understanding in all these things. Paul is praying that Timothy would grow in wisdom in these teachings, that he would be able to understand, that he himself would be able to persevere, and he would be able to be fruitful, and he would help aid others to be fruitful. We should also, in the same manner, strive to understand the different biblical teachings, to dwell in. On th- our readings, to have time, dedicate time to prayer, to give our minds time to process, understand the scriptures that we study. <clears throat> Remember, Paul says, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. <clears throat> Paul is seeking to build up his younger brother in the faith. There were those who had cast Paul out would, they would not listen to him. Those who refused to accept the things that he had taught, Paul had been through many, many things as we're aware of and as you can read in the New Testament. Even he'd been beaten, he'd been even at the point of chains. He's encouraging Timothy to continue to work hardly for the church, to be that obedient soldier, to be that disciplined athlete, to work hard as the farmer so that he may be able to see the fruit of his labors. In this same vein, Paul wants Timothy to keep in mind a few things. He tells him to remember. Paul says, remember that Jesus Christ is of the seed of David. This was someone who was of the lineage that had been prophesied the Messiah would come. This is what they had been waiting for. Remember that this has happened. Also that Jesus, you know, he was not only fully God, but he was fully man. He suffered things as a man. Paul says, remember that he he died and he was raised from the dead. Remember these things. He was dead and he rose again. And Paul says, this, this is the gospel. This is the good news that I teach. These things that were prophesied of, these things that had come to pass, the things that Paul had been specifically called out as apostle and tasked with teaching and spreading this good news. Paul says, this is what I teach. and This is what I've suffered for as if I were an evildoer, as if I were, you know, a thief or a murderer. I've been beaten, I've been chained and put in prison for these things. Even to the point that he was bound, he said, but the word of God is not chained. You cannot bind the word of God. Even in prison, Paul still would be about his work to recall the Philippian jailer. Paul, along with Silas, was able to convert he and his house from a jail cell, along with the well-timed earthquake, of course. Even if it were in chains, Paul had already been preaching the word. It was still working in the lives of those who had heard it still being taught by others, and it is of God. It cannot be bound by man. Chapter 10 says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's an interesting verse. So who is this elect that Paul is speaking of here? Why are they so special that Paul would see them as motivation to continue in the persecution that he has been enduring? What is this election that they have been called to, even though they still are in need of salvation? There are many views on this topic, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this verse. This topics where you'll find a lot of those who believe in predestination. Um, the idea that everyone who will go to heaven or will go to hell have all before time been directly chosen and called out by God himself, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. This is typically by those who look at the Bible through the lens of a few verses instead of the few verses through the lens of the Bible. We'll not get into all of that, but this passage pushes that idea aside. If the elect mentioned here refer to those who have been predestined to go to heaven, then there is no need to try and reach them that they may obtain salvation. They already are some of the few that have been gifted with that from birth. There would be no need for Paul to suffer as he has to bring the word to them. <clears throat> Through Scripture, it's obvious that we have free will and that that free will is what we will use to accept the fall of Christ or to to deny and abandon him. This passage is one of those, also 2 Peter chapter 2 and 21, where we read that knowing the way of righteousness and turning away from it would make our final state worse than not knowing him at all. Excuse me. In Acts 8. Verses 12-17, through 17, you recall Peter commanding Simon, who was the Simon the sorcerer, you recall, to repent after he sought to purchase the ability of spiritual gifts. There's a few passages that show that we camp all the way and that it is of our, you know, our decision. We have the free will to accept or deny him. There are many others. Some would say that the elect are those who were believers in Christ and they were followers, followers of him. Now, now, I believe that that is an election that we can bring ourselves to. By obedience, I do not believe in this specific passage. That's what Paul is, is speaking of. If that were the case, once again, why are they in such a dire need of obtaining salvation if they are already followers of Christ? <clears throat> John <clears throat> chapter 10, I'll read passage here. John 10, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> it reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd." You can also see this in Acts chapter 8, this idea of Paul. He he comes to Corinth, and um, we see him reasoning with those in the synagogue. They oppose Paul, and they blaspheme. And Paul, he shakes his raiment, declares that their blood is on their heads, and declares that he will now go and teach to the Gentiles. (laughs) And starting there in Acts 18, verse 7... It goes on and it says, He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard with the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And then spake the Lord to Paul, and then not by vision, be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no one shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. <clears throat> the Lord declared that he had many people in this city yet they were not believers yet there the, were Gentiles that, Paul, that he would go on to to teach he said but I have many people he knew that there were those who were lost that once given the, the truth not of God's direct intervention on them specifically but they would believe and they would obey if they were given the opportunity and these are the elect I that Paul is speaking of here in 2 Timothy these are those elect that, they, that he is willing to suffer so brutally for There are those in the world today that if they could just be shown the way, that they may just accept and obey. And for that to happen, there must be a preacher. Paul knew there were consequences to his work, but he was willing to go through with it. Paul goes on in verse 11. This is a faithful saying, For if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful he cannot deny himself. If we are dead with Christ in the world, for we are united with him in his death, <coughs> and we'll be alive with him spiritually. Romans 6, verses 1 through 13 says, What shall we say then? <coughs> shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. If we endure this calling out other passages that tell us that we will suffer for Christ's sake as Christians, and this may impact Christians differently across the world, across time, um, we will all be made to suffer differently if we are truly living for Christ. But we're told that we must endure. Paul son Timothy, must endure <clears throat> through this. And if we do, we will reign with him. And this, I'm sure, eases our minds, but I imagine it must have been extremely comforting to those such as Paul and Timothy and those in the early church, those who are being persecuted to death and seeing those around them being murdered <clears throat> brutally, in some cases, for proclaiming the gospel, but that by enduring, enduring and doing so until death, that allows us to the glories that are promised us. <clears throat> but if we deny him, he also will deny us. Matthew ten thirty three. Jesus tells us that if we deny him, he will deny us before the Father in heaven. We must accept him and teach the gospel to others. If we are faithless, if we do not follow him, if we do not obey him, if we fall away and we abandon our Lord and Savior, Paul says he still is faithful. He cannot deny himself. As much as it may hurt him to watch us fall away and deny him, as much as it may hurt him to watch us choose something else over him and abandon him, he will be there to welcome us back as the, just as the father of the prodigal son. As he watched him return, he rushed to him. But also in the same manner, <clears throat> no matter how much and he does love us far more than we can understand and how much he desires us to come to him, once again, he cannot deny himself. He cannot de- deny his teachings. And when the Father declares that it is time and the trumpet sounds and the sky is rolled back and the time is over, he will not deny his teachings and will, say, and will stay true to his word. And those that denied him will be denied to the Father and cast into eternal judgment. That's the, the end of my comments on this passage this afternoon. I hope something was, was beneficial as we continue through our study.